All right, if you would be turning to Colossians chapter one this morning, we'll do verses one through eight as we begin this sermon series. I do hope that you have either downloaded or gotten a physical copy or printed off a copy of the devotional. Um, I do think it will help us in, in a number of ways because each of the days has different things to pray for. Um, it has a question to ask and it will, it will actually orient you to the scriptures that we'll be using so that you will have some idea of where are we going with some of these things. And so it's, it's a help to you. I also wanna encourage you to read the letter that Robbie sent out um, that is uh, some practical ways that we can become a more hospitable church to build on what we, what we uh, talked about last week. Uh, it's just an area that we can all grow in, and it, it's something that I know for many of you, uh, it, it's helpful, especially if you're an introvert, it's helpful to have kind of a, a mission and a task. And so, um, and, and it's not your responsibility to try to reach everybody, but if, if all of us just reached one somebody uh, or welcomed one somebody, we'd be doing pretty well. And so, um, just wanna encourage you in that. I know you're thinking, Cameron, y'all send out all kind of craziness for us to read. And again, rem- I just wanna say, remember that, that one of the things, that, that, that the mission that we see that is most important is that you would be equipped as saints, Right? And so I, I understand you're not, maybe you can't get to all of it when it's sent to you. I, I understand that. That's okay. And maybe you say, I'm not much of a reader. Well, most of it's less than a page, maybe two pages. And so um, it, we, we try to keep it within a certain range so as not to overwhelm you. But we do feel like there are certain things that are important. And so if you can't get to it, a lot of the things that we send, we actually have available on our resource page um, on, on this thing called a website. I don't know if you've heard of it, they're kind of new, I think, uh, and so you may want to check that out and so see uh, if, if maybe you've missed a couple things along the way, but it's just to help us to grow as a church and uh, hopefully to equip us so that we don't go around kind of feeling the burden and the weight of um, maybe not accomplishing what we would like to, amen? All right, so as we turn to the book of Colossians, uh, I want to tell you straight away what the key truth is for this morning. This morning is, the key truth is that we bear fruit in faith in Christ and love for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for us in heaven by the grace of God. Let me me read that again because this this is the, the main where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning in this passage. We bear fruit in faith Uh, in Christ and love for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for us in heaven by the grace of God. And so another way of maybe saying that is that because of what Christ has done for us and secured for us and what is coming at his return, um, we are able to grow in maturity in how we live in the world, right? So how we display our faith in Christ and how we display love for all the saints. And so the question that I have for you this morning straight away is, is what most affects your faith in Christ, right? And so we, you, could, you could go positive or negative here, what, but I think it's more important that we would, we would maybe meditate this morning, given that it's the Lord's Day Sabbath, on what actually helps to strengthen your faith. What, what kinds of things do you find really encouraging that make you say, I, I believe Jesus is who he says he is and did what he said he would do? Right, and, and for me, it is, it is the times when I hear of, uh, of, of, of people living out their faith in very tangible ways, right? Um, there's a couple of families who, uh, of their own accord, have, uh, because they have teenage children, have decided to get together and discuss some things together and encourage one another. 
Uh, I, I think that's incredible. That didn't come from up top. That didn't come through the office. That wasn't a mandate. They just recognized, you know what? We need each other. And if anybody has ever parented teenagers, you realize um, just how frail, just how difficult, just how small you really are. It is a very humbling thing to have children. And, and, and as I've said before, I think it defines and shapes our theology like nothing else. It's one of the most amazing things. It's such a gift from the Lord to, to, to grant us children uh, so as to learn so much more about him. Like, that's why you will hear me say, for those of you who are very worried about my soul with some of the things I say and haven't even asked me about my soul, right? But, but... I know some of you get concerned when I refer to my daughter, Kimberly Barham, as the great contemporary theologian. Um, but I'm going to tell you something. I have learned so much about the Lord our God and his love for his people through the questions that she asks and some of the things she pushes against and just trying to love her uh, when she is so flexible and so fluid and can be such a moving target sometimes. But I love that kid more now than I ever could have and uh, I love her more because of the, the valley of the shadow and so that we've been through together and seeing the Lord still pursue her and still come after her despite all of my mistakes and they are many. And so, um, what most affects your faith in Christ? You need to answer that question. Like, what encourages you? Does it, does it encourage you? Um, does the news encourage your faith in Christ as you look at the world? Well, I want to argue that maybe it actually should. Because God is sovereign. And a lot of what is happening in this great big old convulsing world is the, the nature groaning under the weight of death, standing on tiptoe, neck outstretched, longing for the redeeming of the sons and daughters of God. Just Romans 8. And I hate what's happening in so many places. I do, but I see, but, but I've learned, instead of just looking at it and saying, uh, this, this isn't going to end well. No, we know exactly how it's going to end, actually. And amen, that's what Paul's kind of saying, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, because you know the end of the story, you can actually live in a very broken and darkened world displaying your faith in Christ, as well as your love for some of the saints. No, all of the saints. All. And so, um, one of the things I've been doing and meditating on is the headlines have just been hard this past week is pausing to pray, Lord, where are you at work in this? Because you're sovereign, you're in this somehow. You are saying something to us. Do we have the ears to hear and the eyes to see your church? How can we engage these topics in a way that is meaningful to your glory? You see the qualification there. Not meaningful to our rich European heritage. Not meaningful to statues that won't be in heaven as it turns out. Not meaningful, not meaningful to one side being better than the other. Not meaningful to one side saying, but what about the other side? Not meaningful to any of those things, but meaningful only to the glory of the Lord our God. And so we have the creativity. That's what, that's what so compels me. That's what so excites me about having faith in Christ is we have the creative breadth. We have the story that fits this, uh, the questions that all are asking, there's no one who's not asking questions about meaning and suffering and future. Everybody's asking. Some are answering in despair. 
But we, we have the ability to step into the midst of the valley of the shadow with those people and offer them what is eternally transformative. Do you know that? So as you, I wanna encourage you in something. So as, maybe as you find your way onto yahoo.com or wherever it is that you get your news, um, that you would first say, as you maybe read a headline or read a story that is so, so just gut punched to you, that you would pause at least and say, Lord, first I wanna say, come Lord Jesus, if this is how we're gonna live. But in the meantime, what are you doing? You're sovereign. Remember the truth of your theology and apply it. It can actually strengthen our faith. It's been very encouraging. And then what has had the biggest impact on your love for all the saints, right? What, what helps you love each other well? And I'll tell you, actually, one of the most amazing places where my, the strength of my love for the fellow saints is actually, and I know this is, you're going to think, we, we kind of get you now, is conflict, and, and uh, I know, shocker, right? That, 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 that we can resolve when we can walk through conflict together. Because here's the deal. Do we agree on everything? It's like Steve Brown says, uh, and I'm going to say it arrogantly because I'm going to give myself 60% truth. I probably should do the other way around. But 60% of what I say is true. I just ain't sure which 60% it is. And the truth of the matter is, and I'm not playing fast and loose here. What I'm saying is, in humility, I, I don't know it all. And this whole thing, part of sanctification, is that we are in process. There are certain things that are fixed truths. The, the person work of Christ is not fluid. Just not, right? The, 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 the love of God for his people is not fluid. It is fixed and praise God, right? Um, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in and amongst his people, as Christ promised in John 14 and 16, that is going on and praise God. That is, that is not fluid or up for argument, but, but do you know that some of the cultural argument that we've kind of been having over the last few weeks, that's been raging in the church for centuries? And there are men on both sides who, are, who some of you love and some of you love others who actually have very differing opinions on that, um, and, and, and we're probably not going to come to a firm conclusion between the now and the not yet. We're just not. Um, and, so, and so we can talk about it, though, and we can hash through it, and we can use Scripture to try to say, all right, at least, if, if you're going to do X, Y, or Z, at least give me, give me something, right? We have the right to do that with each other, right? And so just be careful, because sometimes some of the people you quote, um, they also would lose their minds the moment I baptize an infant, right? And that's actually bigger than engaging the culture. And they would also kind of get really upset at my end times view, which has a significant impact on the culture. And they also would get kind of squirrely about my covenant theology that begins at Genesis 1 and ends in, in Revelation 22. We don't share the same ideas. So be careful, right? Just recognize, let's do it with humility, but, but let us sharpen one another and be willing to receive the same strike back that you deliver, right? So if we do that, that is crazy encouraging. And I've seen that in some of y'all, and I'm so proud of you. Um, and it's very moving that we've hung in there. There's been some hard stuff, and I get it. I, I don't know what I would think of me as pastor. I don't know what I would think of half of what I say from your position. I don't. But, but uh, what I do know 
is what I have done in your position when I have heard something that kind of was like, what's he talking about? I don't quite get it. I ate lunch with that man and had that conversation and did so with an open hand. Because I recognize this isn't easy. And we're all trying to figure it out in some sense. But may we return again and again to the gospel as Paul is doing with us in Colossians. Let us work from that foundation and not from the opinions of men that already disagree on so many things. Amen? So that's encouraging to me. What's encouraging to you? What do you find encouraging that helps you love the saints more? I also am very moved when, when I see people um, uh, love other people well. And there's a guy at Starbucks um, I have no idea what his name is, but he comes in every Sunday that I'm there and he buys like this big tray of coffee and I think he's a greeter at his church because he wears a name tag and, and I think he's just buying it for the other greeters, which I, <laughs> yeah. But even more important, he has a profoundly autistic child who I can see through the window sitting in the car, pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding the back of the seat. And sometimes he'll bring him in if he's, if he's kind of got it a little bit better together. But I've watched him be so gentle with that young man, and I, I'm assuming it's his son. And I, as I saw him this morning, I was so compelled to pray for him to endure. Because seeing that kind of love is just impressive. That when people think of other people and they're willing to endure when everything is not easy. What a gift. What a gift. So I want to encourage you today to think about what actually helps to strengthen your faith in Christ and help strengthen your love for the saints and how can you um, ask the Spirit to help you see more of that in the world, right? So as we begin the book of Colossians, let me read to you a quote by David E. Garland, a New Testament scholar, because it kind of, it sums up what the book of Colossians is about. So the main thing we want to get when we're done in November with Colossians is we want to have a greater appreciation for the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Because what's happening in Colossae is false teachers of some kind, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot of scholarly debate about what the heresy actually is in Colossae. And you have some people who are strongly opinionated about what it may or may not be, whatever. We'll get to that some when we get to chapter two, but either way, what Paul is essentially saying is, is that there is nothing you need to add to Jesus. Nothing. And he is sufficient. Now you may say, well, yeah, I get that. Well, do you? Because it's more important that you live it out, which is your faith in Christ, than you just say it. And is Christ supreme, meaning he is Lord over all, and how does that play out in your life, right? When, when, when it comes to what you want to do, and you know it's wrong, are you quick to say, yeah, but this is what I got to do right now. I know Jesus is Lord. I, I'm going to ask forgiveness later. He's got to forgive me. I know the story, whatever. Is that your attitude, or are you more concerned with how other people are going to recognize your, the glory of God in and through you? You follow? And this is something, we're, if we're honest, we all struggle with the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, don't we? We're all in different moments saying, yeah, I know, but. And so this letter, I hope, will help us to have a stronger recognition that in those moments, may the Spirit pierce our hearts and we submit to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Amen? 
So here's what David Garland says. He says, the letter to the Colossian affirms that God's creation has a divine purpose. Let me pause right there. The, the, the cosmos or creation or all things made by God are gonna feature fairly prominently in the book of Colossians as an idea. So that's really important that part of the supremacy of Christ is that he reigns over all things. There is no dualism, there's no, and what, here's what I mean by that. If you've not heard that term before, dualism is, is essentially uh, that which is fleshly, that which is earthly is bad. And that which is spirit or soul is good. Right? What did God say when he finished creation? It is good. It is very good. And when it fell and was convulsing under the weight of death and curse, what did he do? He said, I'm going to redeem it all. That's why there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to read a few passages about heaven this morning that I hope will help us long for its tangibility. So, the letter to the Colossians affirms that God's creation has a divine purpose, which is brought to fulfillment in and through Christ. It affirms the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ as the fullness of God and as our creator and redeemer. That is what the book of Colossians is about. And so he's going to really press up against, and we need to be investigating in our own hearts and praying, Lord, show us where we think you are insufficient. Show us where we maybe don't say it, but we do it. Show us where we don't think you reign supreme, that you're not Lord. Because again, I go back to reading the headlines. Hard as they were this week, and they are many weeks. Who's supreme? Who reigns over all that? Well, what's fascinating to me, and this is why I love scripture as a former cynic and radical anti-theist, is Hebrews chapter two. It says very clearly, Christ reigns over all things. It quotes Psalm eight, Christ reigns over all things, although it doesn't look like it right now. Who, who does that kind of honesty? God does. And I, I love him for it. And it doesn't look like it some days, does it? It doesn't look like it this week, but he does. And never forget that, people of God. And look for all the avenues by which we can display his glory in the midst of those things. Because people are asking all kind of questions right now. The letter to the Colossians, just to give you a little bit of background, um, it was a church that was not planted by Paul. It was planted by a, name, a man named Epaphras. Um, it was probably planted, if you want a biblical reference, during the uh, missionary work in Acts chapter 19. Paul was in Ephesus. Colossians is about 80 miles away from there. And so it was probably during that time he had trained up Epaphras, sends him to plant in Colossae. Colossae is in western Turkey in the Lycus River Valley. I don't know if that means anything to any of you, but just in case it does, there you go. The church was probably planted somewhere in the mid-50s. Um, it was known for its wool and weaving. In fact, uh, one of the colors of, of uh, yarn uh, was actually called Colossian, and it was a reddish color. And so, so they were known for that, but there was an earthquake probably sometime in the early 60s that may have devastated the city and rendered it not much of anything. Now, that's important why would you plant a church there? At a city that it's not a main thoroughfare, it probably isn't a big deal at all. Why, why plant a church there? Because people were probably hurting, right? For the loss of industry and the loss of, of, of all of these things, they were probably hurting. And why, write a le why even worry about them at all? Because God does that kind of stuff. Paul, when he writes the letters in prison, 
there's an argument about exactly where he's in prison, but he's in prison. And it looks like, according to Philemon verse 23, that Epaphras is probably in prison as well. The letter that Paul writes, he sends by a man named Tychicus and another man named Onesimus. Now, why should that name ring a bell? What's that? He was a slave, but what book matters? Philemon. Yeah, Colossians and Philemon are tightly, they're, they're, they're together. We probably should have included Philemon in this series, but uh, unless Robbie wants to preach on the whole thing on the one day between this and the Advent series, we may not get to it this time. But uh, Onesimus is a freed slave that has come to Christ who Paul um, appeals to Philemon to grant him his freedom because he's a brother now and no longer a servant. So for those who kind of wrestle with, hey, what's, what's the Bible's view on slavery? Well, that people should be redeemed and set free from oppression and brokenness because that's how the new heavens and the new earth is gonna go, right? And so, so at least there's a sense in which there is a, it should be changed and transformed. It takes time. And so Onesimus is, is sent with this and, and that's an important thing that he's part of this Colossian church. And so uh, Paul sends it because he's gotten wind that some false teachers have crept in and are trying to, to add to Jesus and say, Epaphras didn't give you the full gospel. No, no, no. You gotta, you gotta add these things. You gotta do these other things, right? You gotta uh, observe these feast days. You, you can't touch that. You can't taste that. You can't, you, you can't uh, observe that. You gotta do these things. We, we know better than Epaphras does. And so Paul's trying to help them understand the, the purity and the beauty and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ in the gospel, something we would benefit from as well. So with that as background, let us turn to the text, verses one through eight, and we'll do them all in one chunk. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it is also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant, fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here Paul opens with making sure they know who he is. So he is an apostle and that meant something. It meant that, that he was one of the ones specifically chosen by God to plant churches and to oversee the planting of churches and to shepherd those churches. And he's an apostle not of any, any, any state, any government, any denomination, any of those things. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is really important. He wants to make sure straight away, I, I, I don't have anybody else that I have to talk to you about. It's Christ and Christ alone. And then he also makes it clear that it was by the will of God and not because he chose, not because he went and got a degree, not because he wrote a book, not because he blogs, not because, which is not possible back then, but, but not, not because he does any of those things. Not, it's just purely because God chose him. And that's consistent with Acts chapter nine in his experience on the road to Damascus. If you don't know the story of Paul's conversion, 
Um, as we get into the book of Colossians, it'd be great for you to go and read Acts chapter 9. But real quick, he was persecuting the church. His name was Saul. And he, uh, he actually held the coats as Stephen was beat to death with rocks. I don't know if you've ever witnessed anyone being beat to death, but it is, it is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And what you need to know is Paul stood there holding the coats, head held high, thinking he was doing the work of the Lord. And so Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus. He blinds him and he says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul's thinking, I haven't done anything to you. I'm, these heretics is who I'm dealing with. Dealing with them in the chat rooms and the online forums where everybody listens, right? Comment section, doing the Lord's work. No, no, he was actually persecuting the Lord himself because the Lord himself is so tied. He's the head of the church. And so he brings Paul, Saul, this bloodthirsty man who thought he was doing the will of God into the kingdom. And he was persecuting people um, not, not just based on their beliefs, but also race as well. And so, so what a fascinating thing that God would redeem that man. And that should, be a, that should encourage us to no end. In fact, I was so shocked uh, this week, one of the videos out of Charlottesville. I know some of you were shocked I didn't bring it up last week. I usually like to give things a week and kind of see what's really going on before I say something about it. Uh, and I'm glad you guys didn't walk out like Nicole Norderman suggested you do. Uh, but but I, I do want to address, Nicole Norderman's a singer you probably don't listen to anymore. And she said, if your pastor doesn't talk about Charlottesville this week, you should walk out. I, I get it. We need to address it. But I wanted to kind of see what, what, what's, really, what, what, what's really going on here before I say something. I know that shocks you that I would show any restraint whatsoever. <laughs> Every once in a while, like lightning, it strikes. So... So this guy, they're interviewing one of the main guys, and I can't remember his name, and I do want to go back and get his name, not for doxing purposes, but because I want to pray for him. They asked him, are you afraid of being out here? You know what his answer was? You might see it, it was on 2020. Fascinating. Broke my heart. He says, what do I have to be afraid of? I'm doing the Lord's work. You are. Brother, let me... Let me carry you to a few Old Testament passages and a whole bunch of New Testament passages and we can reconcile this quick. No, you're not. You're not. You're violating the Abrahamic covenant. You're violating Revelation 7. You're violating everything that Jesus died for, the middle wall of separation, Philippians 2. We can talk Bible all day long and show you you are not doing the Lord's work, but I can't change his heart. Only the Spirit can. He sounded a lot like I'm sure Saul did. So we, we need to be pray, you need to pray for these men because if they turn, if they come into the kingdom and repent as we hopefully have done and should be doing, what would it look like? How would it change so much? What a beautiful thing it would be because when Saul became Paul, he became an instrument in the hand of the Redeemer. He was used in a mighty way to plant churches. So he, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, by the will of God alone. What a gift to the church. And we should be praying for men just like him to get redeemed. And, and that would, I think, 
help build our faith in some sense. He goes on, he says, and Timothy, our brother, now there's a lot of debate about why he mentions Timothy. More than likely, it was just so they'd be familiar with him so that if he ever came to Colossae, they'd have an idea who he was, right? Sorry. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, now that term faithful brothers, I won't bore you with the Greek here, but it is actually a unique phrase for Paul. And the reason that they think that he used it, and I believe this is true, is he was trying to remind them you're part of a family that has already decided on something, that has already been defined by something, and that something is the gospel. Don't go adding to it. It doesn't help make the family bigger or make you better to, to add things to this. Remember, you are faithful family by the virtue of the gospel. And so he's really, and Paul is such a master of using language um, to help emphasize certain points. And I think that's certainly true here. He goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father, which is a common phrase from him. And he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, first off, notice he is, he is so faithful. He's in prison, by the way. Which is such, a, such an encouraging thing that, that he could easily have said, God has forsaken me. Think about all the doubts that may, could have crept into to Paul. Because again, he could make the argument, I could do so much more out there. Why am I in here, Lord? Why do you have me in a place where I cannot use the fullness of my gifts for the kingdom? How many of you might be saying that about where you are? And yet Paul said, Lord, you're sovereign. This is where I am. I'm gonna evangelize a praetorium guard. Some of them came. I'm gonna send letters to the churches. I'm gonna keep working. You're sovereign. This is where I am. And I'm not saying he didn't have tough days. But what I am saying is he kept doing what it was that would glorify the Lord our God. And we should be greatly encouraged by that, that he refused to let any of this be wasted. What an encouragement to us who sometimes think that God is punishing us because we haven't, we haven't been acknowledged or we haven't been given certain opportunities or because certain things haven't gone well or because whatever it may be that God may seem to be withholding from us, let that not inhibit your ability to glorify the Lord your God. But please hear me, don't do it thinking that it's gonna cause him to do something different. That if I'm just obedient, God will give me what I'm asking for. That's not how it works. You're to be obedient because he redeemed you from destruction. There is no greater gift, none. And he's going to uh, restore you to his presence. What more, what more could he give you? And you may say, well, a uh, Maserati wouldn't be bad. A husband wouldn't be bad. A child wouldn't be bad. An opportunity to use my gifts wouldn't, wouldn't be bad. Uh, uh, to quell my anxiety, that, that wouldn't be so bad, would it? And in all those things, it's not that he is, he is trying to punish you in any way, shape, or form. It's that he wants us to recognize before, we, before any of and all of those things that his presence is sufficient and supreme, which is why Christ condescends to us. Amen? So he goes on, he says, we, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we had heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that you have laid up in heaven. Now I wanna pause right here. A common thing that Paul does is he, he puts faith, hope, and love together. That's a, it's a triad that he uses often. And, and there's three places where it really stands out. 1 Corinthians 13, here, and then in Galatians 5. It also appears in 1 Thessalonians, but in those three cases, it's fascinating, and you should go and look at them. He emphasizes a different one of them. In 1 Corinthians 13, it makes sense that what he says is, is there's faith, hope, and love, but love is the greatest of these. I wish, I wish we believed that. And then, in, and then in Galatians, he emphasizes faith, and here he emphasizes hope as, as, um, as being so important to the other two. So what we're seeing is a threefold cord that should not be broken. And so these things go together, they, they, they always do, and so it's important that we understand what they are. So faith, just so you know, is not intangible. It's not, you, you, it's not fingers crossed. It's not hedging your bets. No, faith is actually trusting that Christ is who he says he is and that he does what he says he will do and that God is good and that he loves you. Now, be careful. That doesn't mean that you can claim anything other than those truths. But what you can know in any given situation that whatever is going on, that it is, according to Romans 8, for your greater good, even when you can't see it right now. And I know some of you are in some really hard places. And I know those words don't yet have the full breadth of meaning that they someday will. But I trust that the Lord our God, again and again and again, as he does, has done in my own life, will show you that he is good and that he loves you and that, and that he is who he says he is. And that Christ did what he said he would do. So faith in Christ means that you Cling to and know that he died for your sins and that has a tangible effect on your life in terms of shame and guilt and that he rose from the grave, which has a tangible effect on you walking in newness of life and that he makes intercession for you and that he sent the Holy Spirit. Those, and we could go, there's a lot of things we could flesh out further, but for time's sake, I wanna stop there on faith. But, but just please hear me. Faith is not fingers crossed. Right? Faith is actually believing in something of tangibility and that changes things. And he says, and of your love for all the saints. Um, I will confess to you that probably the thing that makes me want to behave badly and wrestle with my addictions more than anything else is dealing with, with Christians who behave badly. And what I mean by that is they don't, they don't love each other well. They, they excoriate each other. They deny certain aspects of the truth of the gospel and they lop off huge sections of the Bible in favor of others or in favor of none. And so, so probably the most dangerous place sometimes for me is not the movie theater. Just not. It's other places where there are large gatherings of people who are fighting about things that we just are wasting our time on. But I got to deal with that, don't I? I can't avoid it all the time. Heck, I'm a pastor. And you got to go to this stuff sometimes. And I got to love them too, right? And I got to deal with the plank in my own eye because I'm a jerk too. I am sometimes. And I'm trying to grow and get better. And Jesus is so gracious to me. And I know that makes some of you uncomfortable to think, our pastor just admitted to being a jerk, which is just the tip of the iceberg, which means he's way worse. 
Yeah, probably. I don't know. I can't see it clear. But I love you. And I want to be loved in Christ. And I want us, I want us to do things that will help our faith grow. And I want to love all the saints. And that ain't cheap, by the way. We talked about that last week. And those things are only possible. This is critical. This is the critical piece. They're only possible because of the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Now, one of the most misunderstood, you're like, every week you say something is horribly misunderstood. Yeah, I'm sorry. But one of the most misunderstood things is heaven. The thing that we ought to, that will, will, will actually build our faith, build our love for all the saints, is so poorly understood. I had a lady one time say, uh, we're going to be wearing gold slippers in heaven. I was like, I hope not. I, I hate gold slippers. I got to be honest with you. Now, if I'm in heaven, what am I going to do? Tell them I don't like the footwear. Do you have another option? I'm not, I'll wear them, right? But, but, but we just have such ear, this kind of interesting views of heaven when, when there are a number of passages that don't flesh it out necessarily in full, but certainly flesh it out better than we seem to understand it. And what's so fascinating to me, and I, I want to commend this little track to you, or it's a pamphlet, uh, by Francis Schaeffer. It's called Back to Freedom and Dignity. Um, it's, it's a fascinating read. And, and, and what, as I was reading it the other day, Susan was like, the sermon's just getting longer as you read that thing. Stop. Uh, but, but I'm not going to give it all to you. But it was so fascinating to read these men um, who are so uh, important to our world. One of them is Dr. Francis Crick. Does anybody know who Francis Crick is? Quick test, I knew you would know. He helped crack the DNA code, right? Which is a pretty important thing. It's been incredibly helpful in a lot of ways. But do you know what Francis Crick believed in his, in his philosophy, which he used the term religion, which I find fascinating. He was, not, he was a radical anti-theist. He did not believe in God, but he referred to his belief in biology as religion, which is actually honest. It's a really honest thing. He believed that what we ought to do since we know about the DNA code is we ought to um, decide who can have kids and what kind of kids they can have. Now, that was 1971. And he gave that in a, a speech in front of a bunch of people. And you may say, and what was so funny to me as I was reading um, uh, some of the reviews on this, this pamphlet was people were like, yeah, this thing's a bit dated. Let me, let me just ask you, did you read a headline this week that Iceland has figured out how to get rid of children with Down syndrome? They've, they found the cure. Do you know what it is? Test every pregnant woman and abort every fetus that comes up positive. Which, by the way, does anybody know the percentage that that test is wrong? It's fairly high. Has anybody ever had the blessing, the joy of uh, in having any sort of encounter with a child with Down syndrome? How sweet they are, how they actually help us to love sometimes better. I mean, Henry Nouwen, Jean Venier, uh, La Arche community was built on these things, and it's profound. And yet Iceland's figured it out. You know what else? You know what you can't look at in Iceland? Pornography. Because they blocked it, except for probably some 13-year-old kid in some basement in Iceland somewhere has probably figured out how to crack it. But they're, they're all about, they're all about no obscenity. And look at how far it has gone. Also, nothing grotesque. And you know that CBS in America build this as a good thing. Here's what's fascinating. Where does that doctrine come from? 
What's it called? Anybody know? Eugenics. What government, governments, have practiced eugenics? The Third Reich. It was a key, it was a key uh, idea within the Third Reich, okay? So follow me now. Stay with me. Why are we so upset about what's going on in Charlottesville? Because they're Nazis, and we need to know who those neo-Nazis are. Out them all, because we should know. But in the same breath, we run a headline, which, by the way, I am not in favor of neo-Nazism under any shape, form, or fashion. I am not in favor of white supremacy. We'll get to that in a second. We'll we'll get to you. Uh, We'll get to it. Uh, But how dare we say Nazism's wrong? Oh, next story. Iceland has figured out a cure. Uh, just so you know, it's not just the Third Reich. There's also a country called America that also has practiced eugenics through a woman named Margaret Sanger. Anne Rand was also a big proponent of this as well, organization that your tax dollars support called Planned Parenthood, based on eugenics. And they're not the only ones. China practices eugenics. Um, and so, is this, is this what we want to laud? Have we lost our minds? Francis Crick, 1971, and I'm sure it was stated. Margaret Sanger is long before Francis Crick, by the way. The Reich was long before this. And so, and so, Francis Crick, what was his reasoning? What's the reasoning behind eugenics? Now, I don't think I've lost my mind in what I'm about to say. There is, at bottom, as crooked and awful as it is, a genuine longing for a a better world, for there to be a new heavens and a new earth. But they want to control, they want to decide what is grotesque and who is in and who is out. White supremacists have the same idea, right? Those who think that any race is superior to another, it's the same kind of idea. They're saying, uh, we just want a world where we can be comfortable and everything can just work the way we want it to. And we would just want to be rid of all things that in any way, shape, or form reflect uh, anything broken. It is, it is exactly, I think, as Schaefer says, everyone has a longing within them for the world to come. And yet, we are trying to seize it by our own power and, and decide who's in and who's out. And there's many others who've had these same ideas. Um, Jacques Monod, who is a French molecular biologist, said, we, we need to get rid of nukes. Is that a bad idea? If we've rid the world of nuclear weapons, anybody not in favor of that? Um, and he also said, and we need supermen to decide for the world what is best. A panel, if you will. Anybody ever heard of the UN? I'm not critiquing, don't, don't think I'm being, I'm really not, I'm not casting political stones. I'm just trying to say, we need to think. We, we need to be very careful of, of the things and, and recognize deep within what's happening. And, and it's actually happening here. After a week like we've had, we have Charlottesville and you have Barcelona and you have this headline from Iceland. It's been interesting uh, one of the comments that popped up and it just was in the feed, I, I don't do the comments thing for the good of my soul, but it said, we need, to, we need a break. And you know what oftentimes the solution for that break is? We need to turn this over because it's clear. 
We, we don't know how to vote <laughs> to some people. I'm not saying that. Save your email. That's cool. Uh, we need a break because we clearly don't know what we're doing and we need somebody to make these decisions for us because we've lost our ever-loving minds. And so we're, we're kind of arcing toward maybe a, a, a gentler socialism, fascism, whatever that may be. And I don't want, I'm, not, I'm not throwing that, but we need, to, we need to recognize though that what people are actually longing for, they're longing for the world made new. Even if it's distorted and twisted in what they're uh, uh, suggesting, that is an entry point for the gospel. If you know anything about heaven, if you know anything about the passages, they're so beautiful. I think about the passage in Isaiah 25 where, where, where God declares through Isaiah, on this mountain, they will eat the finest of meat and drink the richest of wines and the covering of death will be done away with for all nations and the proud will fall. That's tangible. And you say, well, that's probably metaphorical language. Well, but Revelation 19 says it's gonna be a marriage supper. Think about what Christ said. He said, I'm not gonna drink again of this cup until the new heavens and the new earth. Here's the beauty of heaven, and this ought to move us. Your best meal has yet to be had. And those chicken wings that kept me up all night last night, that ain't gonna happen again. You may say, it could, you could not have it happen now. Make wiser choices, Mr. Barham. You're right. But the best meal is yet to come. What, and, and who's going to be invited to that meal? Think about what Christ said when he said, go out into the highways and the byways and invite the rich and the intelligent and the supermen. No. He said, invite the broken and the lame, which is so consistent with Ze uh, Zephaniah chapter three, where he says, when I come, when I come, I'm gonna sing praise songs over y'all, which I, I think we, we think heaven's gonna kind of be this one-way street. It'll be call response. Jesus will be testifying of us as he promised he would do in Hebrews chapter two. God's gonna sing praise songs about us that won't have never-ending repeated choruses, and it's gonna be amazing. The, finally, we'll all agree on worship, I think. I think, that's my hope. And so, and so he's gonna sing and we're gonna sing and it's gonna be this just amazing, amazing physical experience. And we're gonna eat, we're gonna eat good. Mo Leverett seems to think that the city of New Orleans is gonna cater. That may, may or may not be true, I don't know. But what a beautiful thing to look forward to. And every tear, every tear will be wiped away. The ones we've shed this morning, the, the, the groaning in our hearts, will be at long last, no more. Not because the lame aren't there, but because they are gonna come running. One of the greatest experiences I've ever had in ministry, and so that, I'm just putting it up there, so you, need, you guys need to try to help me top this one so I can say something different in some other sermon sometime. But a friend of mine uh, used to invite me to do a middle school youth retreat. And there was a young man that would come on that retreat named Curtis who, um, who was uh, gifted with cerebral palsy. And I was talking about the new heavens and the new earth and, and what, what it's gonna mean for our bodies. And Curtis paid me, the, not me, but paid God one of the best compliments I have ever seen. Curtis was sitting on the front row uh, and, and he began to vibrate. He said, woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, I'm gonna come running. I know you're thinking, was that a worship service? That seems a little out of order. No, that's exactly what we should do. 
That's exactly how we should respond to heaven. It's because of heaven that we can have faith in Christ and it be tangible and it be meaningful. It's because of the hope that is laid up for us. And by the way, that hope is, again, not fingers crossed. It is a surety. It is something, something that we can sink our teeth into and that we can stand firm upon. And it gives us a freedom to say to those who would think that Down syndrome children aren't worth letting to live in this world, no, don't think that way. There is a greater good we could show instead of, as Ravi Zacharias would say, cut their nose off before we ask them to smell the rose. So it's important that we see these entry points, and heaven is a big one. It's a big one, but we need to be versed in it. There's so many verses. Did you know that Psalm 72 is about heaven? Talks all about how the poor at long last will no longer be that. They will no longer be oppressed. When's that going to happen? When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back. Because the poor we will have with us always, unfortunately, in some measure. And poor in spirit, poor in material, poor in so many things. And did you know that in Revelation 7, somehow, some way, uh, our differences in terms of, of, of tongue, tribe, and nation will be represented in heaven? We're going to see it. We're not all going to be like pasty white with hairless, no eyebrows, and no hair, I, I'm, I don't think. Because it says, it's clear to John as he looks out on the people that every tongue, tribe, and nation is represented. He saw, and they were all singing the same song. Again, that's why I know we're going to agree on worship at long last. And so, so it's not that, that our, our differences are somehow diminished. Yes, black is beautiful. But so is mocha and tan and pasty white and multicolored and calico and whatever it is we got to offer. And no one, no one is supreme to another. Woe be unto us if we ever think we are better than another. Woe be unto us. Because the hope of heaven makes it very clear to us what is laid up for us and what is to come. Isn't that the beauty of this table? As we come to this table, one of the things that, that, we, that we should do is we should always look forward the table is such a gift to us because it reminds us not just of what Christ has done in terms of the past, but what he is also doing in the present, how he is uh, freeing us of our shame and guilt, how he is making us new, but it also points forward to heaven. And anytime we take communion, if you don't pause and think about heaven in some way, shape, or form, you kind of have missed something good in the table, right? And so, so this morning, my emphasis would be on the table for you to meditate on the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And maybe today what you could do is take some of those passages, Isaiah 25, Revelation 7, Psalm 72, Matthew 25, um, any number of these, uh, Revelation 19, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, uh, and there's many more, Romans 8. Take some of those passages and just meditate on it and ask the Lord to help you better understand what's been laid up for you. And it's secure, isn't it? It's secure because of the person and work of Christ, because he's sufficient and he's supreme.